You are listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. Recently named one of Christianity Today's 12 podcasts you don't want to miss, 2021, I'm your host, Marty Duran. Hey everyone, if you're a regular listener to Uncommentary, you may know that we were recently named one of the 12 podcasts you don't want to miss by Christianity Today. We're really happy about that. Uh, I want to talk to you if you've been listening, but you haven't yet become a supporter through Patreon or PayPal. Uh, it's really helpful, and I'm going to do a pledge drive. I'm hearkening back to the old days. So right now there are about 32 or 34 regular monthly supporters for Uncommentary, and then every month I'll pick up maybe one or two additional gifts of support through PayPal. So I want to encourage you, if you've yet to jump on that particular bandwagon, Every episode that doesn't have an episode sponsor, and that's like 90% of them, is sponsored by my Patreon uh, group and the PayPal supporters. So I encourage you to join that little band, patreon.com slash uncommentary or paypal.me slash uncommentary pod if you'd like to give just a one-time gift. Now, at Patreon, you can support PayPal, uh, support uncommentary for only a couple of bucks a month if that's your limit. Uh, you can go to four or five or 10 or 20 or something like that. If you're feeling especially generous or if you've been blessed in some big way, uh, I'll take it and put it to good use. But I want to encourage you over the next six weeks or so to become a supporter through Patreon or through PayPal. Thanks a lot. It's been some number of years ago. Uh, I was in Kenya on a mission trip and was in country for about 15 days, something like that. And part of the time that I was there, I spent uh, walking from uh, Boma to Boma, that's home place to home place, with a handful of Maasai evangelists and pastors. And they had each taken some time away from their churches and their homes uh, to participate in this evangelistic opportunity. And so we found ourselves walking these various times in various places. And I was I was intrigued by questions that they had about the Bible that I'd never thought about. I didn't realize it at the moment when they would ask those types of questions that a lot of it had to do with um, perspective. It had to do with them being uh, in Africa, being in Kenya and be being in America, being in Georgia. And so uh, as the the weeks rocked on, the couple of weeks rocked on, I remember one specific time that we kind of met up with some other uh, Maasai evangelists that were on a different team and they were kind of talking together. They began to sing. And, um, after it was, I recognized that as they were singing, uh, they would take turns making a lion's roar, uh, in the song. And so after it was over, I uh, asked one of the guys, Paul, who had become a friend, um, what's, what was that song about? And, uh, he told me the name of it and it was lion of Judah. That's the translated term, translated title, uh, lion of Judah. And I said, well, what's the, what are the lyrics? How does it go? Uh, and he said, uh, well, part of it says, uh, when that lion roars, the witch doctor gets saved. And when that lion roars, the drunkard gets saved. <clears throat> and so I was just like, wow, this is really, really awesome. Well, I, I didn't even realize that what I was learning in that moment wasn't just the lyrics to a song. I was learning how context affects the way that we understand the scriptures. And so my guest today is Derwin Gray, and he pastors a multi-ethnic church. And part of what we're going to talk about is how our experiences shape how we understand church and how we understand what takes place and how we minister to each other. And I think this is a helpful conversation 
We also talk about a book he's just recently released, but I think this is a helpful conversation because it's part of a conversation we need to continue to have if we're going to understand each other better. Well, my guest today is not a stranger to you if you're on Twitter, uh, unless maybe you were on Twitter during that six-month time he was locked out of his own account. What Did you ever figure out what that was all about? <laughs> I got hacked, man. Oh. I got hacked. I'm just going to blame Ed Stetzer until I see evidence to the contrary. I'm just going to blame you him. Know, uh, it, I don't think it was Ed Stetzer. I think it was Ed's old goatee that did it. <laughs> it has a personality of its own, and uh, I think it went rogue and just decided to hack me. It probably has more than a personality of its own. It's probably got a chicken bone and some ham hocks in there, too. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. Oh, man. Founding and lead pastor of Transformation Church, a multi-ethnic, multi-generational, mission-shaped community in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. Now, is that where you're from? Is that home for you? No, I'm originally from San Antonio, Texas, but uh, Charlotte, we came here in 1998, and so it's it's our adoptive home now. We okay. love the Carolinas, and so our physical location is in Indianland, South Carolina, but... Uh, everything is, you know, it's just a greater Charlotte area. So, uh, we love it and thankful to be here. Well, as I say to my friend, Melvin Edwards, Texas is a great place to be from. (laughs) Well, Texas is, uh, Texas is its own country and, uh, born a Texan, always a Texan. So I've got, I definitely have some Texas pride for sure. That's uh that's what I hear. It's like the curse, you know, it's just like the fall of man. You can't get away from it no matter what happens. Nope. Um, not at all. Dr. Derwin L. Gray, welcome to Uncommentary. Hey, thanks for having me. It's an honor to uh, to be with you. So we've been hanging out some on Twitter for a year or so, and uh, I don't know if you remember this, but I ran into you and Leonce Crump at uh, the old Lifeway building. Uh, y'all were there. I don't know if you were videoing or if you guys were talking I about some writing, that. do you? It was really yeah, quick, like in that big hallway type thing. So, yeah, we've met. Uh, just briefly, but it's great to have you on, man. I'm really happy for your book. I'm happy for your friendship and looking forward to this conversation. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be with you. And I, uh, really appreciate, uh, just who you are in the kingdom and man, I'm excited about this conversation. So building a multi-ethnic church, a gospel vision of love, grace, and reconciliation in a divided world. And it looks like you built off of some work you had already done. Did you, mm-hmm. um, so did you just add content or did you like refresh content? Did you kind of take it and go a different angle with it? How did that come about? Yeah. So, so, so what I did when I first wrote high definition leader in 2015, um, I don't think the American church, especially the evangelical church was ready for the message. Mm-hmm. And so as 2020 rolled around, my friends and Thomas and Nelson, um, I was like, I have new content because I had finished my doctorate by then. Mm. But it was also a right now moment. Um, I think all of us recognize there's something hemorrhaging and brewing in the evangelical church, mm. whether it is sexual abuse uh, uh, aspects, whether it's leaders falling whether if it's massive church decline, whether if it's the poor uh, race relations in the church, we, we, we realize something is happening. Mm-hmm. And so after after the murder of George Floyd, um, white evangelicals um, began to just it's almost like they were ready to listen, like, OK, um, there has to be something here for something so heinous 
and so brazenly out in the open to take place. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's kind of when Thomas Nelson and I said, hey, we need to add more content. We also need to change the title of the book because the book explains what it's about, building a multi-ethnic church, a gospel vision of love, grace, reconciliation in our divided world. As believers, we know that there's a problem. Sadly, the progressives use secular tools, and that's not going to work. The ultra conservatives are, are saying, well, is there really a problem? Just preach the gospel. <laughs> and uh, so my thing is this. What do you mean by gospel? Mm. Because if you simply mean substitutionary atonement, you don't go to heaven. Uh, I mean, you don't go to hell. You go to heaven when you die. Then that's a reductionistic gospel. Mm-hmm. The gospel that's proclaimed throughout the New Testament is actually rooted in the covenantal promise that God made to Abraham. We know this from Genesis 3, 8, when they, when Paul says to the Galatian church and the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham and this, all the nations will be blessed. And so Genesis 11, the world is scattered. Genesis 12, God says, I'm getting my family back through Abraham. And ultimately, Jesus comes the fulfillment of Israel and as the true Messiah through his glorious, sinless life. Mm. Through his substitutionary atoning death on the cross, his resurrection and ascending of the spirit, God gives Abraham the family he promised. And this family now learns to grow in holiness. And holiness is simply loving God and loving your brother and sister as you love yourself. Mm. And you become a, a, a witness that bears to the glorious resurrection. And so that part of the atonement, that part of the work of Christ is often missed. And what I'm trying to do is situate the gospel back into the equation. It's not that the gospel doesn't work. It's that the gospel has not been tried. Mm. You cannot heal a spiritual problem with sociological tools, and you can't heal a problem if you ignore it. Mm. So when you planted Transformation Church, uh, did you plant with the idea that this would be a multi-ethnic church, or did you sometime uh, after that uh, think, man, I need to kind of re-steer this ship a little bit because I've missed something? So my wife and I uh, did not grow up in a church. Both of us came to faith in our uh, around 26 years of age okay. through people at our jobs. Uh, a football player who played with the Colts led me to Christ. A woman in my wife's job led her to Christ. And so... As we read the Bible, we didn't know we had an option not to plant a multi-ethnic church. Ah, excellent. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Jesus is very clear. Go make disciples of all ethnos, that's Mm -hmm. ethnic groups. And that's not just across the sea, that's across the street. And so we wanted to be reflective of our demographics. And why is that important? It is important because all people matter to God. And so therefore intentionally creating churches that exclude the other is not God's idea. That's mm-hmm. why Paul says in first Corinthians nine, 19 to 23, I become all things all men and one may know Christ. He was a master of cross-cultural currency, uh, uh, cross-cultural competency so that he could communicate the gospel and disciple Jews and Gentiles to be the people of God. And so when we planted our church, it was intentionally multi-ethnic because we believe that God made a promise to Abraham. The Bible says that Jesus is the seed of Abraham. And once again, through his redemptive work, he not only forgives our sins, but he gives us brothers and sisters with different colored skins Mm -hmm. 
And sanctification is the process of learning how to love each other in the midst of a world that is incredibly divided. And sadly, uh, when you look at the history of the church in America, uh, we have often been complicit in segregation, mm-hmm. in racism, in those things. And I believe God is calling for a new reformation. And I'm seeing signs of that happening, but I'm also seeing greater signs of resistance as well. I remember as a young pastor reading, I don't even remember which book it was, but it was such a common thought back in those days. It could have been any books um, about the homogenous principle, where if you want your church to grow fast, uh, try to reach the people that are like you or the people that are alike, because they will be naturally attracted to each other. They'll understand each other and your church will grow because there won't be any of these problems when, when you're uh, not homogenous. But what you wind up with are churches that really aren't expressions of the kingdom. So how did you, did you deal with a lot of people as you planted transformation? Did you deal with a lot of people? who kind of had that in mind and it was, were there tension points or inflection points where you had to sit down with folks and say, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're not going to do. Oh yeah. Always, always. So, so, so let me, let me back up just a little bit for some of the listeners going, well, what's the homogeneous unit principle? <laughs> uh, it starts with a, with a, a, a missionary to India by the name of Donald McGavern. He was a fuller professor. Mm-hmm. And in India, you have a caste system because of karma. Karma, in essence, says what you did in your previous life is what you get now. And so the castes do not intermingle. So it's like apartheid-ish. It's segregationist. And so Donald McGavern said, okay, let's develop a way to reach each caste. But then when we reach them with the gospel, we put them in local churches with the other cast because they're now unified in Christ. That was called the homogeneous unit principle. It was successful in India and American Christians grab a hold of it. And they said, oh, we like this homogeneous unit principle, but they didn't add the other part. Bring the people together. Yeah. (laughs) And the homogeneous unit principle fits it fits within a racialized uh, American context. 90% of churches, 90% of black churches in America exist because of racism within the white church, meaning they had to worship in slave quarters, meaning they were not allowed to participate and such. And so black people said, hey, uh, 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 we worship Jesus. We're going to create our own churches. And so the homogeneous unit principle fits right into segregation Mm -hmm. and Jim Crow and those things. And so, yes, you can grow a church faster with like-minded people, but you also grow echo chambers of ignorance and prejudice. Michael Emerson, University of Chicago sociologist, and I and, and I cite this in my book, but homogeneous churches actually promote political division. Hello, wow. we got some of that going on. Wow. Actually promote uh, injustice. Actually promote uh, ignorance and stereotypes. Because if you're only around the same people, mm-hmm. you're gonna you're not gonna know the other. And so, one of the beauties of the early church. And by God's grace, our church is because of our multi-ethnic, multi-class um, context, we're seeing the gospel from different situations and 
our eyesight helps each other see better because we're different. And so our differences allow us to be different for the better. So instead of being in echo chambers of ignorance, we become engines of innovation because together we're better. And yeah, um, you know, there are, there are people who, uh, who still leave our, our church. We, we, we've, we had, we've had black people who are like, well, you need to be, uh, you need to you need to be more hard, you know, and then we've had white folks like I don't want to hear about systemic and justice and systemic and justice isn't true. And, wow. you know, so that is that is a part of it. But let's not forget. Read the language that Paul writes to the churches of Galatia. I mean, in verse chapter four, verse 19 is like, I want to see Christ formed in you. I wish I didn't have to use this tone of voice. Mm-hmm. Every one of Paul's letters was, was to correct error. So this is going to be difficult. What I'm saying is let's, let's not make it more difficult because of poor theology and an underdeveloped understanding of the gospel, which leads to soteriology and then ecclesiology, which is the people of God there. Our gospel is too small. Our cross is too small. If Jesus only forgives your sins, then you miss the point. Like, what good would it be for God to go, yeah, I forgive you, but you can still be a racist. Mm -hmm. And we have also, uh, Marty, is we have made the definition for being a racist or someone prejudiced far too low. We we think because we don't have Nazi swastikas or wear hoods on uh, on our heads that we're not racist. But racism is indifference racism is i'm too afraid to say anything Mm. prejudice is well i'm fine with those people i was talking to a gentleman one time and we're having an inflamed conversation and and i said well what do you think about those people and he goes well i'm okay with them." and i said well as a christian where does jesus say love god with all your heart mind soul and strength and be okay with them yeah (laughs) No, God doesn't call us to tolerance or to be okay. He calls us to love. And love is sacrificial. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is long-suffering. He's really calling us to be Christians. And I think in a lot of evangelicalism, as long as you, hey, I received Jesus and I'm going to heaven when I die, there has to be some congruency of now my life is to be shaped after the pattern of Jesus. And if you see his life, oh, my gosh. Mm. I mean, he was with Gentiles. He was with woman caught in adultery. He was overturning the systemic injustice at the temple. Uh, I mean, you know, his, 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 his life was one of incredible depths of love. But he understood his mission was to give Abraham the family that his father promised. And that family is a regenerated, righteous, reconciled community. You're listening to Uncommentary. This is Marty Duran, and my guest today is Derwin Gray. We're talking about, among other things, his book, Building a Multi-Ethnic Church, and we'll be right back after this. If you've been listening to Uncommentary for any length of time, you've heard me talk about Hearts and Minds books. They're my favorite independent bookstore located in Pennsylvania, owned by Byron Borger. I hope you'll give them a try, heartsandmindsbooks.com. Every book I've ever ordered from Hearts and Minds has come carefully wrapped in uh, brown wrapping paper, like packaging paper, every single book. Nothing's just thrown in a box with a with a thing of bubble wrap and shipped to you in the hopes that it gets there in some kind of condition that it's still worth reading. You never have to worry about that. 
with Byron. So I encourage you to try out Hearts and Minds books. Go to heartsandmindsbooks.com and let him know what you need. Mention Uncommentary, and if you can, he'll give you a discount on the book that you order. Thanks a lot for listening and support Hearts and Minds books. Um, on page 20 of your book, you kind of start covering uh, what you just called during the break the Black Exodus, and there was a Times Detroit Times article published in 2018 called why are people of color leaving white evangelical churches? And the excerpt from the article is the Exodus started the day after George Zimmerman, the, the George Zimmerman verdict. We were mourning and we went to church on Sunday morning, hoping we would hear a word of comfort. Many of us who went to either multiracial racial or predominantly white spaces found no word of comfort. We found no word at all. And that's the end of the quote. Uh, a few years ago when, Dylan Roof killed those uh, nine black folks in uh, Charles, Charleston. The following Sunday, uh, our church, which was, uh, I would say, I, I would think multi-ethnic was probably a little strong. We had some uh, African-American families, uh, but predominantly white. And we decided that we would take a moment in the service to talk about what had happened and why it was important. And so um, we did that, and we had a, uh, a collage of all nine victims uh, on the screen, and we t- I don't remember if we talk- called their names or whatever. We talked about the situation, and we had prayer for the church and the families. And I, I, I was in one of our campuses, one of our other pastors was at another one of our campuses, and we did the same thing at each campus. So when that service was over, um, one of our African-American members came up and said, I never thought I would see this in a white, a predominantly white church from a white pastor. Mm. So talk a little bit about what's going on there, because I, I know there's an effort at multi-ethnic church sometimes, and there just seems to be gaps a lot of times in how it plays out in real life. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So let me let me give you some context. Uh, back in 1998, only 6% of evangelical churches were considered multi-ethnic. What does it mean to be multi-ethnic? To be multi-ethnic <clears throat> means that no one ethnic group makes up more than 80% of the church. Okay. Well, by 2020, actually 2018, now... 58% of mega churches are now considered multi-ethnic. Wow. 58%. However, of that 58% of mega churches that are multi-ethnic, only 90, I'm sorry, only 10% of pastors are non-white. Mm-hmm. So within the multi-ethnic churches that are, or within the mega churches that are multi-ethnic, 90 percent of the pastors are white. And what the research shows is issues of justice, issues that would concern black people are rarely discussed. And those are the multi-ethnic churches that black people and people of color are leaving Mm. because um, the way I describe it, it's like a bowl of vanilla ice cream and you got caramel and chocolate chips in the ice cream and it gives a little taste, but not enough to affect the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And so God isn't looking for chocolate chips and caramel chips. He wants swirls where we're swirled together in oneness. Also research shows this. When white people think of church diversity, they think people of color 
coming to a white church. Rarely, if ever, is it white people go to a black church mm-hmm. or a non-black church. Mm. So inherent, even within that mindset, is a position of, well, our ethnicity is a priority. You come to us. There's very little thought of us go to them. And throughout America, we have seen black people be very kind and very merciful. Like, hey, we will we will we will give this a shot. So within my space as a multi-ethnic church leader, I'm actually trying to help the multi-ethnic church actually be multi-ethnic instead of just, hey, we got some people of color, but the people of color have no leadership influence. Mm-hmm. Um, their preaching and teaching has no bearing um, their leadership has no bearing on the actual culture of the church. That's mm-hmm. not an authentic multi-ethnic church. Yeah. Now, let's take a step back. When black people speak about police brutality, it's not something happening in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. There's never been a time in my life as a black man that there's never been fear of police officers. Um, when you look at the history of our nation, police were used by the Ku Klux Klan to keep black people under control. Uh, Dr. John Perkins, a living legend, a modern day Apostle Paul, his um, brother Clyde went to World War II, fought against racist Nazis in Germany, but was killed by a white racist police officer when he returned home. Mm-hmm. So he fought for other people's freedoms, but came home and wasn't free. He fought against Nazi racists in Germany, but came home and was killed by a racist police officer. Mm-hmm. Now people say, well, Derwin, everything you're talking about is the past. And you're hundred percent right. Past injustices are not to make present people guilty. It's to make present people aware mm-hmm. that how we got to the present didn't just happen in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. And so it's to look back at the past, to mourn the past collectively, and then to move forward together in the future as Christians to live out the Beatitudes, to be salt and to be light. But one of the problems that I see within white evangelicalism is that there's no desire to look back at the past because so many believers have their identity in the United States of America Mm -hmm. and not Jesus. Mm. So my fourth grandfather removed fought for the Virginia Cavalry, fourth regiment with the colored group against the Confederacy. Wow. He fought, he fought for the meaning of the flag. Yeah. Liberty and justice for all. Okay. So there's patriotism in my blood. My family fought for the ideals of this nation against the confederacy the confederacy was lasted four years it did not want to be american it was not patriot it was anything but being a patriot it wanted to destroy the idea of america and keep people enslaved so when the insurrection went down on january 6 2021 and i see a confederate flag Mm -hmm. in the u.s capitol every pastor in america regardless of ethnicity should have been preaching about the justice of God because liberty and justice for all uh, is what this nation is supposed to stand for. But that hasn't taken place. So 
it's important for my white brothers and sisters to understand that this is all of our nation, not just yours. Mm-hmm. This is all of ours. And that this nation that that this nation was built on the backs of enslaved people, that my home is on the land that Catawba Native Americans used to own. I'm not going to feel guilty, but what I am going to do is seek justice for my Native American brothers and sisters and every human being, regardless of ethnicity, because I'm a Christian. There's a thing you uh, you touched on a minute ago that I want to go back. And it, <clears throat> you listeners, if I've mentioned this recently, I apologize because it's a thing that's been on my mind. Um, and you mentioned your fourth great grandfather uh, served with the Virginia Cavalry. And um, one of the things that I've been thinking about recently is that the way the different ways that people in America think of time, especially as it relates to our history. Uh, and I don't know whether this is a dominant culture thing or whether because that that would be white and then non-white or whether I, I don't know how to explain it. But it seems to me that most white folks, if you think about the time from slavery to now, we refer to that as, well, it's been 160 years. It's been 160 years since slavery was. So what, why are we still talking about what is a big deal? But people who are the descendants of that oppression think about it like that was just four generations ago. My great great grandfather was a slave or my great great grandfather was born to born into two slaves. And it's, you know, I heard the stories from my grandmother that you know, of slavery or, or that kind of thing. So white people tend to think about it's 160 years. It's been so long ago. Why are we still talking about this? Whereas a lot of people who were phys- were touched by it familially say, well, no, it's just been four generations. Why aren't we still talking about the ramifications that came from this? It, am I seeing that? Am I thinking about that in any kind of way well, at all? It's it. No, no, you, you are, you are a hundred percent correct. It's a it's a selective memorization of the past. Mm. It's well, we can talk about George Washington. We can talk about Franklin. We can talk about the Boston Tea Party. We can talk about the Revolutionary War, but let's not talk about the bad stuff. Mm. Okay. And in any family, you have good, the bad, the ugly. I love being an American, but because I love America, I want her to live up to her ideals. Mm But when your identity is found in America, if you say something bad about America, that's even true. You think they're saying something bad about you. Yeah. And my <laughs> and my role as a as a as a pastor say, no, we're citizens of heaven. Mm-hmm. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, which should make us honest and fair and just citizens in the United States of uh, uh of America. And so we can't be selective about the things we're going to honor in the past, but not discuss the negative things. So, so Crispus Atkins was the first American killed at the Boston Tea Party, which led to the American Revolutionary mm-hmm. War. Well, Crispus Atkins was a large man. History says that he was like six inches taller than the average man. And so he was put out front for intimidation and he was shot and killed. What most people don't know is Crispus Atkins was black and Native American. Mm. So you have a bi-ethnic man, black and Native American, and you look at America, black and Native Americans have an incredible story of suffering, of betrayal, but yet incredible forgiveness. Mm. And uh, I don't I don't think that that's by accident. And, and so as Christians, 
we should be able to do honest history. And I want to make this point very clear because I know there are some pe- people who are going to say, well, you're just using that as an excuse to, to such and such. First of all, I am more than a conqueror in him who loved me. Mm. I'm not a victim. But because I'm more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and the truth does sets us free, I don't want to look back at the past and lie. Mm. And so if we don't understand the past, we won't know how we got here today. For example, something as basic as redlining. Mm -hmm. If we don't understand after World War II how white GIs got all types of incentives to live in suburbs, if we don't understand how cities were redlined to keep black people and minorities in certain areas, we won't understand how we got here. But we do that with other things, though. Mm. So we have to stop being selective. And as Christians— This is a part of discipleship that we want to develop the mind of Christ and the mind of Christ. Philippians two, three, four, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others better than yourself. That's uh, uh, Philippians two, three. And of course, two, five, the mind of Christ. And it Mm -hmm. goes into the beautiful passage of the kenosis where it's a self giving sacrificial love. I'm not sure Christians get self-giving sacrificial love to the other yeah yeah and it's important for us to see ephesians 2 16 is still true in the bible that through the cross he took the two jew and gentile and made a new humanity Mm. we have to go ahead um i was just going to say as we're getting near the end i want to ask you to address um white evangelical pastors. I want to set this up by telling a story about something that happened to me. So this would have been, man, I don't know, 15, 18 years ago, something like that. I was pastoring a church in the Atlanta suburbs and, um, there was a, uh, biracial young man in our church. His mom attended and she was white. His dad, uh, I think he might've been French, but he was dark skinned. Um, and so uh, I think this little guy's name was Cameron, if I remember correctly. And so he'd been coming to our church for a while. Well, his grandmother came uh, and would come about once a year. And about the third time she came, she was very demonstrative. I think she was from the Chicago area. Uh, she was very demonstrative. Just, I mean, she was like she was in black church when she came to our church. And she, I loved it. It was really awesome. Well, after the service one time when she was there, and I guess this would probably have been in a January, um, she walked up and said, um, what are y'all going to do for Black History Month? <laughs> and I was like, I, I don't think we're doing anything. I mean, like I'm the pastor. I'm like, I don't know that we're not doing something. I don't think we're doing anything for Black History Month. And I said, um, she said, well, I, I really want my grandson to be in a church where they talk about black history. And so I, I'm sure I just said something completely ignorant and she mm. was, she was gracious and, and, um, I don't remember, I, I was at the church for a while longer. We never observed Black History Month at the church. Um, so now I want to loop around a little bit to the story we we're talking about before about the Exodus and the, the observation by the African American church members that when things happened in society that wounded them, that were hurtful to them, that was not talked about from the pulpit. So I want to connect those things together and talk about the unawareness that so many white evangelical pastors live with of what 
their African-American congregants and not just African-American congregants, but African-Americans in general feel in these kinds of situations and why they feel that these things are so important and why we miss them. I mean, I, I don't know of a single white evangelical Jesus loving pastor who would intentionally hurt their African-American congregant. I, I just not like that, but it's a, there's a, there's a something that's missing that we don't empathize right, or we don't have the exposure, or we don't seek the right kind of relationships that expose us and give us that kind of thinking. Talk to the white evangelical pastor who might be listening and all of a sudden has an epiphany that I didn't even know what needs to happen in that guy's life. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So how do you tell a fish that it lives in water? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, it gets caught or the lake dries up and all of a sudden it's not in water and it goes, oh my gosh, I've been in water my whole life. <laughs> so a couple of things are going to happen. Uh, people are going to leave the church. Uh, the ministry is going to become less effective and you're going to go, oh my goodness, not everybody comes from the context that I do. Mm-hmm. So, so the first thing is it boils down to, um, love. Like, why did, why did the apostle Paul, a Jew, a Pharisaical Jew who studied at the feet of Galileo, write in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, I become all things all men that one may know Christ. Mm-hmm. And why did he take time to understand the Gentile world? Why did he take time? You know, as a Jew, he understood that world, but he had to learn the Gentile world. Why? Because of love. As a black man, I've always had to know the story of the other. Mm-hmm. I've had to know other people's stories. So what was appear to be a disadvantage is actually an advantage for me as a multi-ethnic church pastor, because my heart is always for the excluded because I've been excluded. Mm. My heart is always for the marginalized because I have been marginalized. Mm. And so what happens is it's like you have to have this, um, this awakening. It's like you have to have this gospel revolution to go, Oh my goodness. How am I going to make disciples of other ethnicities if I don't know them? Mm. Mm. If I'm not in relationship with them, who is around your dinner table besides professional athletes and musicians? Would people of color speak into your life, into your children's life? Mm. And if it's just Charles Barkley, that's not getting very far, is it? Yeah, no, it's 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 not. Let let me give you an example. I I was a, a few months ago. Right after the insurrection, I was at a very, very large, influential mega mega church. And the pastor was saying that his staff wanted him to make a statement about the insurrection. And he goes, I didn't really know what to say because, hey, um, you know, the government officials came back in. They did their jobs. The insurrection didn't win. So what's the problem? And I said, would you like for me to hear what I said to my staff? He goes, well, yeah. <laughs> I said, well, the first thing that I said is, I, I said, I know um, how many of you feel, particularly those of you that are black and those of you who are are Latino. Um, the first thing you felt was, man, if this was a group of black people threatening to take over the U.S. Capitol, a nuclear bomb would have exploded mm. and blood would have ran down the streets. You, you, you are overwhelmed that this could happen at the Capitol. Mm. Secondly, 
your heart is broken over the fact that so many Christians were saying, hey, don't kneel when the flag is being presented before a professional football game. But so many Christians were silent when a white man took a pole and believe and beat a police officer with the American flag. Mm. Blue lives all of a sudden didn't matter mm. anymore. And then thirdly, to see a Confederate flag in the U.S. Capitol utterly broke my heart for this nation. Now, like I said, I love my country and I love what the flag stands for, liberty and justice for all. But it appeared to me and many other people of color that liberty and justice is not for all. Mm. And the same anger was not expressed. And um, so that's what I said. And his mouth was just dropped open <laughs> because most of his staff is white with very few pe people of color, but the people of color feel neglected. Yeah. They feel hurt. And so what I would say is <clears throat> really ask God to teach you how to love people really deeply to build meaningful relationships, but it, this is a, this is a Jesus thing. Mm. And sometimes it gets frustrating and you say, man, is it so hard to learn to authentically love people? Mm. I've been talking to Derwin L. Gray. He's written building a multi-ethnic church, a gospel vision of love, grace, and reconciliation in a divided world. You can find him on Twitter at Derwin L. Gray. Now, do you write on, do you have a blog like where you post stuff regularly or no? Yeah. Uh, you can go to Derwin com, and that'll take you to my sermons and books and everything that you need to know, social media as well. Excellent. And I want your listeners to, to know that this book is not just for pastors or elders. It's for, if you love Jesus, you'll love this book because it'll give you a bigger view of what salvation actually is. That's fantastic. Thanks for hanging out today, bro. Thank you, man. Talk to you later. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at UncommentaryPod. Please rate and review, and whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean, uh, or Overcast, or CastBox, whichever one you use. Uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uh, on your Facebook page, or if you tweet the link or retweet the, uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always... Uh, Solideo Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast.